Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The Peter Schiff Show. Hi, everybody. This is Peter Schiff. It is Friday, June 3rd, 2016. You know, it was a few weeks ago, following the release of the Federal Open Market Committee's meetings, in which the various governors appeared quite hawkish in their tone. They were talking about the resurgent U.S. economy, the strengthening labor market, and the fact that they thought it would be appropriate to raise interest rates, I think, in June. And as a result of that, the markets reacted. The dollar had a big rise. Gold dropped. You know, it had risen to almost $1,300 or a little bit over $1,300 an ounce when everybody thought the Fed wasn't going to raise rates. And now, as soon as the Fed changed the conversation and they put these rate hikes back on the table, gold went all the way back down. I think it touched below $1,200. The dollar index rose all the way back. I think the lowest had gotten it, maybe it was below 92 briefly, but I saw it as high as about 96 earlier this week. But the rally in the dollar and the decline in gold, the catalyst for that was the Fed and now the anticipation of rate hikes coming this month or maybe even next month. And in fact, in the days and weeks that followed that unexpectedly hawkish FOMC minutes, Various Fed officials were out giving speeches, and every one of them was talking about how it's going to be appropriate to raise rates and how the economy is recovering and we're bouncing back from the weakness that we had unexpectedly in the first quarter, and that now, you know, the Fed is finally going to get around to raising rates again. You know, the first time they raised rates was in December of last year. And of course, they, they talked about it all year before they finally went up by a quarter point in December last year. And so if they went up by another quarter point in June of this year, I mean, that's still a pace that's much slower than the pace that Greenspan used when he was moving up from 1%. He was moving up a quarter every time they met. This would be a quarter, what, every six months? And in fact, even if the Fed was, in fact, going to raise rates in June, 
I think that would have been the only hike of the year. And in fact, I didn't even believe that they were going to do it in June. If you listen to one of the podcasts that I gave, when, the, when they first started talking about this supposed June, June rate hike, I was saying, well, how could they even talk about a June rate hike? They haven't seen the May jobs report, which is going to come out in the first week of June. And if that jobs report is weak, I said, well, they're not going to raise rates. And even if they did raise rates, it's too little too late. I mean, it's not going to be good for the dollar. It's not going to hurt gold because the foreign exchange markets and the metals markets have priced in far more rate hikes than the Fed could possibly deliver. In fact, again, if they did raise rates another quarter point, that would probably be their last rate hike of the cycle. And by the end of the year, uh, they would be cutting rates. And that is not in the market. The market was anticipating a normalization. And if you remember, too, it wasn't just that the Fed was going to raise rates. They were going to shrink the balance sheet. Remember Janet Yellen talking about that, how they were going to get the balance sheet back down to where it started the, uh, the financial crisis by the end of this decade? I was saying that, you know, she was lying back then. The balance sheet hasn't shrunk at all. That's because every single treasury bond that's matured, they've reinvested the proceeds. Every nickel they've earned in interest, they've reinvested that too. So the Fed hasn't even started to unwind the balance sheet and they've barely raised interest rates. But again, I said that if we got a weak jobs report, that would clearly take rate hikes off the table, even though I believed they were never even on the table. And that is exactly what we got today. The Labor Department dropped a bombshell on the markets. People were anticipating a relatively weak report, given that I think there was a strike over at Verizon, and that was supposedly going to take away about 20, 25,000 jobs. But even with that, People were looking for 160, 170,000 jobs. The actual number of jobs created in May was 38,000. That is the fewest number in six years. But it gets worse because they took last month's number, which was also weaker than expected. They were looking for about 200,000 last month, and it came in at 160,000. And I remember... Last month, a lot of people thought that they would revise that 160,000. They did, but they revised it down, not up. They brought it down to 123,000 jobs. And in fact, they even revised a month before that down by another 10,000. But so you got, you got 123,000 jobs uh, in, in April and just 38,000 jobs in May. Even if you throw back in the, the striking Verizon workers, this was a terrible number. But again, it gets worse the labor force participation rate dropped all the way down to 62.6 from 62.8. About 660,000 Americans threw in the towel and left the labor force. That is why the unemployment rate dropped to 4.7%, right? It didn't drop because unemployed workers got jobs. No, it dropped because unemployed workers stopped looking for jobs. And when they stop looking for jobs, they're no longer counted as unemployed, even though they don't have jobs. Wages also were barely up. They were up 0.2 for those who didn't lose their jobs. Uh, and hours worked went down. Again, that's because more and more people are settling for part-time jobs instead of full-time jobs. Look, the number of Americans not in the labor force is now at a new all-time record high. In fact, when you add the people not in the labor force to the people who are still in the labor force but are looking for work, it is a staggering number of Americans who are underemployed, unemployed, out of the labor force. How President Obama 
can try to take credit for an economic recovery that is non-existent. And in fact, if you look at the GDP growth that we got in the first quarter, the only reason that we got a slightly positive number is because the government assumed that the inflation rate was just 0.6% on an annualized basis in the first quarter of this year. I don't think the true inflation rate is anywhere close to 0.6%. If they had a more honest number, we would know that we were in a recession. We got more bad economic news that came out later in the morning. No one even talked about it, I guess because they were still shell-shocked by the jobs data. They didn't even look at this other data. But it is very telling because it was on, it's on the service sector, which unfortunately is the biggest part of the U.S. economy. The manufacturing sector has been in recession for a while. Everybody will acknowledge that. But everybody is still hoping that the service sector bails us out. The two reports we got, we got the, the, the service sector PMI that came out for May. Last month, it was at 528 And instead of improving, it dropped all the way down to 51.3. It's barely in the expansion uh, area at 51.3. But the the bigger miss was in the ISM non-manufacturing number. Last month, that was at 55.7. They were expecting something similar. They were looking for 55.5. Instead, the number dropped all the way down to 52.9. Again, this is a very, very weak number for the service sector. And I think it's only going to get worse for the service sector as the year progresses. The service sector is going to join the manufacturing sector in recession. You know, when I was watching the coverage of the jobs numbers coming up, first of all, it was pretty funny because one of the things I heard somebody say, I think it was Steve Leisman on CNBC, he was saying, well, you know, this is probably politics. You know, they're trying to, they want to have a low number now so they can have stronger numbers Uh, closer to the election. Well, isn't that admitting that the government is manipulating the numbers? Because if they're manipulating the numbers, it's the inflation numbers that they're getting manipulated or it's the GDP numbers. I don't think they want this weak number. I think if they were manipulating the numbers, they'd be manipulating them higher, not not lower. But also another thing that Leisman said, which I thought was very interesting, is when he was trying to rationalize why the Federal Reserve was so optimistic You know, because they were out there again talking about how strong the economy was. And now all of a sudden, all this data comes out to refute everything that they've said. And what what his response was is, well, the Federal Reserve believes that their policy is working. And because they believe it's working, they assume that the economy is going to respond positively. So that's where they're getting their outlook. It's based on their own bias from their own expectations. And he's partially right. But whether they believe it or not, I've always said the Fed is always going to be optimistic because it's cheerleading. It's trying to build a recovery based on their own rhetoric, right? If they talk about it, it will come. If they can convince everybody that the economy is recovering, they'll create a psychological condition that leads to recovery. People will be optimistic. Businesses might hire. Uh, They might, consumers might spend if they're convinced the economy is going to be better and it might become a self-fulfilling prophecy. But to the extent that the Fed actually believes that their policies are going to be successful and therefore they bake in that belief into their forecast, that may be true as well. And I've talked about that, but that's inaccurate. You know, medieval doctors believed that leeching was going to work. 
The problem was they kept leeching their patients until they died. And, you know, that's the same thing that the Federal Reserve is doing. The Federal Reserve thinks that cheap money is going to solve our problems. If they can just keep interest rates low enough, if they can just print enough money, that they're going to create economic growth out of thin air. That's not going to happen. In fact, all the money printing, all the cheap money, that's the reason that the economy is still so weak. That's the reason we've never actually recovered. That's why we're sicker than ever, because they keep putting those leeches on and they expect to cure the disease when the leeches are what is making us so sick. And so, yes, the Federal Reserve is going to come back with more of the same because that's all they know. The problem for the Fed right now is not only their own credibility, but President Obama's credibility and by extension, Hillary Clinton's credibility, or maybe even Bernie Sanders. I mean, who knows? Uh, Clinton might get indicted and the Democrats might even be nominating Sanders. But assuming that it's Hillary Clinton, the Federal Reserve wants to help Hillary Clinton and they want to help her sell the voters on four more years. Now, these last four years have been terrible. In fact, the last seven years have been terrible. Why would anybody want more? But if the Federal Reserve admits how bad it is, by acknowledging that we need more help, by admitting that we're back in recession, that's the last thing that Hillary Clinton needs uh, to try to get elected. And of course, the Fed's own credibility is on the line because they've been promising all this economic growth. And if they fail to deliver, then it's going to be very embarrassing for the Fed. Now, maybe they're hoping that the, um, the British vote to leave the UK. They're calling that a Brexit. And maybe if things go down because of that, well, they can blame it all on that. I mean, they're always looking for an excuse. They always want to blame uh, the economic weakness on some external factor so they can save face. But the reality is the problems in the United States are homegrown and the Federal Reserve is what's behind it. Meanwhile, you know, the whole time that the Federal Reserve was talking about all the improvements in the economy, there was no real evidence that the economy had improved. In fact, in the weeks that followed the release of the FOMC statements about the improvements in the labor market, we were already beginning to see that the labor market had turned south. And of course, it's only going to get worse for the labor market. What about the impact of all of these minimum wage hikes? This has barely started to work its way through the market. I mean, we're still creating these low-paying jobs, but pretty soon we're going to be eliminating these low-paying jobs. We're going to be automating them out of existence. And it's not simply because of the minimum wage hikes that have already taken place. Businessmen are going to start to anticipate higher wages in the future. They can see the way the wind is blowing, right? They can read these tea leaves. If you are an employer of low-skilled workers, you're going to be forced to pay those workers a lot more money unless you can figure out how to get rid of them. And that's exactly what employers are going to do in order to survive, in order to stay competitive. They're going to plan now. They're going to get ahead of this curve. They're going to start outsourcing. They're going to start automating. They're going to do whatever they can to minimize the number of low-skill workers on their payroll so that when they raise the minimum wage, uh, the impact on their businesses is less. So this is coming. These layoffs are coming. And still, we're still getting positive non-farm payroll numbers, even though they're very small. But I do think before the year is over, we're going to start to print some negative numbers. And that unemployment rate that has been going down solely as a result of people leaving the labor force, eventually it's going to start going up. Not because the people who left the labor force come back in, but because the people who lose their jobs, some of them are going to want other jobs, and it's going to be very difficult for them to find them. And so they're going to be counted among the, the unemployed. You know, 
if you look as an example at the situation in, in Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico's been in the news a lot recently because it's broke, and everybody admits that Puerto Rico is broke. And the fact of the matter is, they've been broke for years. I mean, nothing has changed. They're just as broke now as they were three years ago. It's not that they were solvent three years ago, and now all of a sudden something happened and, 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 and they can't pay their bills. The difference between Puerto Rico today and Puerto Rico three years ago was that three years ago, even though they were broke, the creditors didn't care or they didn't know. And so as long as Puerto Rico's creditors were foolish enough not to notice that Puerto Rico was broke and couldn't repay its bills, they kept loaning more money at very, very low rates of interest. And as long as Puerto Rico can keep borrowing, it can keep spending and keep pretending it was solvent, even though it was obvious that it wasn't. But then all of a sudden, people wake up. You never know what the catalyst is that's going to cause that to happen, but nothing that can't go on forever will. And eventually, the Puerto Rico party came to an end, the creditors came to their senses, and then you're in bankruptcy. And now people have to deal with reality. Either there's going to be you know, a default, there's going to be a restructuring, people are not going to get paid what they were promised because mathematically, it's impossible. Well, the same laws of math apply to the United States. We're even more broke than Puerto Rico. On a per capita basis, even if you adjust it for relative incomes, we are more deeply indebted than the people of Puerto Rico. Yet our creditors are just as oblivious to our insolvency and lack of ability to pay as were Puerto Rico's creditors a few years ago. Now, sure, we got a printing press and we can use that printing press but that's not going to solve the problems of our creditors because if we have to use the printing press because we can't pay legitimately, then the money that we repay our creditors in isn't going to be worth very much. You know, Donald Trump let the cat out of the bag not too long ago when he talked about how he was the king of debt and he could play with debt and restructure debt. And his solution for our debt problems was to negotiate with our creditors. And the minute he said that, and all of a sudden it got into the media, and I think I had a lot to do with that because I was the first person to point out what he was saying, and I agree. You know, if you go back to my book, uh, The Real Crash, America's Coming Bankruptcy, I argue for the fact that we should admit that we're broke and restructure our debt because we have to let interest rates go up. Part of the problem is that interest rates are too low. But one of the reasons that the Fed won't let interest rates go up is because if they let interest rates go up, we can't afford to pay the interest on our debt and we'd have to default. So to avoid the embarrassment of default, they keep interest rates artificially low. But I think that it's better to be honest in default than to go through the currency crisis that we're headed to. And Donald Trump made the same point, but of course the media took up the task and then immediately Donald Trump changed gears and he said, well, of course we're not going to default, we'll just print money. Well, that is worse. That is not what our creditors want to hear, that we're just going to pay you off with monopoly money. We're just going to run the printing presses because that is going to set the stage for a currency crisis. And, you know, today the price of gold was up $33. Uh, gold stocks, I think the GDX index was up 11% on the day. This was one of the biggest moves on the day. The dollar tanked. The dollar index closed just below 94, I think 93.99. The biggest move down was against the yen. I think we dropped almost two full percentage points against the Japanese yen. But some of the other currencies were almost up 2%. The dollar had its biggest down day in five years against the Chinese yuan. But this is just the beginning. 
when people actually figure out the box that we're in? Because they still think the Fed's going to raise rates. Now they're saying, okay, maybe they'll raise rates in July or maybe they'll raise rates in December. Wait till the conversation turns to rate cuts. Wait till the conversation turns to QE4 or negative interest rates. Wait till people think that I was right from day one, that the Fed checked us into a monetary roach motel, that there is no way out of this monetary policy, that there will be more QEs than Rocky movies unless the foreign exchange markets intervene and force the Fed to abandon the policy to prevent the dollar from going to zero. And of course, that is what ultimately they're going to have to do because if they completely destroy the dollar, they're going to completely destroy the economy. But unfortunately, before the Fed finally gets religion, the dollar is going to lose a lot more value. Gold is going to go a lot higher. And eventually, all the people who have been, you know, who have believed all this nonsense, all the people that put their faith in the Federal Reserve, uh, that believe these phony numbers, they're going to come to the same conclusion that Puerto Rico's creditors finally came to, that we're broke, we can't pay our bills, the recovery is an illusion, it's a gigantic bubble, and that bubble is already burst, and the air is coming out, and pretty soon it's going to come out a lot quicker. And what people need to do is before all that air comes out, is do something. Do something to you know, change your portfolios, to realign your investment strategy. You know, I read that this year is the worst year for managed money in about 18 years. Hedge funds are blowing up left and right. Why are so many investors losing so much money this year? Because they're not prepared for what's happening. They all believe the dollar would go up, the Fed would have grades, the U.S. recovery would, go, would continue. And so they're invested for the exact wrong um, outcome. And most of these hedge funds that are bet the wrong way, they still haven't changed. They're still wedded to this ideology. They still believe what they believed last year. They don't want to admit reality for a number of reasons. But at some point, circumstances will force their hand. The data is going to come out. Things are going to come out that is going to change the narrative. But before that happens... That's when you realign your portfolio. Don't wait until the herd is trying to get out the same door at the same time because it's not going to be pretty and there's not going to be a lot of room for everybody to get out a very small door. When everybody who's been buying dollars wants to sell, when everybody who's been selling gold wants to buy, there's not many people to take the other side of those trades. I don't know how many more video blogs I'll be able to record before the bottom drops out of this market, but count yourself lucky Uh, because it hasn't happened yet. Sure, the dollar is down this year, gold is up, but it's nothing compared to what I think is coming in in the years ahead. So it's not too late if you haven't already positioned yourself. And in fact, if you are positioned properly, it's still not too late to press those bets, to add to those positions. Because if you were a little uncertain last year about how things were going to play out, because things seem to be going the wrong way, you should certainly be encouraged by the events that have happened so far this year. You know, the way the markets work, it's, you know, it's not about reality. It's about perception. And if everybody believes one thing, even if what they believe is wrong, and they all base their investments based on that same false belief, that's going to influence the markets. And so the markets are priced based not on what's going to happen, but what the vast majority of people think is going to happen. And generally, the vast majority of investors are wrong. They were wrong about the dot-coms. They were wrong about housing. They were wrong about subprime. 
they're wrong about this. It's the same people being wrong about the same thing because no matter how many times they get surprised by a bubble bursting, they still can't see one. In fact, a funny conversation I saw, again, on CNBC today, uh, it was Steve Leisman and Joe Kernan, and they were talking about negative yields in, in Europe. And, and why are investors so dumb? Why are they buying sovereign bonds with a negative yield? And then, of course, Steve Leisman tried to come up with some rationalization about why they were doing it, as if it made sense to do it. And, you know, none of these guys can see that there's a bubble in sovereign bonds. I mean, I don't know how many bubbles you can cover. You know, you spend your whole year uh, as a financial reporter and you see all these bubbles, yet you can never spot one until after it pops. The reason that people are buying European bonds at negative yields is because it's a bubble. Look, during the real estate bubble, investors were buying uh, investment properties that had negative cash flow meaning that the rents that they collected were not enough to cover the cost of owning the property. Now, why were they doing that? It was because they believed that the price of the real estate would go up, despite the fact that it had a negative cash flow. They thought that there would be a greater fool who would pay an even higher price and endure an even lower negative or bigger negative cash flow than they did. So it was the greater fool theory. That is what's going on now with European sovereign bonds trading at negative rates of interest. Except the greater fool is the ECB. People are buying these bonds not because they're dumb enough to hold them to maturity. Nobody is going to hold a negative yielding bond to maturity because then you're guaranteed to lose money. The people who are buying these bonds are buying them to sell them. They think they're going to find a greater fool willing to pay an even higher price and get an even more negative yield. And that fool is the ECB because they have a bond buying program. And they're going to buy these bonds regardless of price because it's not their money. But this is a gigantic bubble. Every time a central bank gets into a market and manipulates interest rates and prints money, they create a bubble. And the one thing all bubbles have in common is that they always burst. And the bigger the bubble, the bigger the the damage when it bursts because the bubbles themselves create the problems. They create the malinvestments. And it's the market that bursts those bubbles and tries to restore balance to the economy. You have the government and the Federal Reserve fighting the markets, trying to prevent the market from uh, restructuring the economy to produce healthy economic growth. And instead, you get a bubble that masquerades as a recovery and you get the popularity of Donald Trump You get the popularity of Bernie Sanders because as all the people in Washington, everyone on Wall Street, everyone at the Fed, President Obama, they all want to take credit for this non-existent recovery. The people who are actually living in the economy know the economy is no good and they're going to vote that that way uh, in November. But unfortunately, you know, none of the candidates who are running are actually promising to deliver the type of medicine that we actually need. And so rather than putting your faith in politics, you've got to take your faith in your own hands and get your financial house in order before the White House changes hands and before we get this next economic crisis, which again is going to be on an order of magnitude larger than the 2008 financial crisis because it is going to have its origins as a currency crisis, which will morph into a sovereign debt crisis. And the impact on the average American, on the average portfolio, on the standard of living and quality of life of most Americans will be much more um, uh, dramatic than it was last time around. And hopefully, hopefully this will be the catalyst for real change.
to finally admit that the source of our problems is government, central planning, and central banking. And the only workable solution is going to be to restore the free market capitalism, the type of economy that was enshrined in our, in our founding documents. We need to go back to our roots. If we want to make America great again, which Donald Trump keeps saying, well, we have to re-embrace the economic policy. We have to re-embrace the constitutional limits on the federal government that were in the Constitution. We have to go back to our principles that made us great. Because if we don't do that, we won't be great again. We have the capacity, but do we have the will? Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.